0: Alright, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. For those who might be visiting with us today, let me share a little bit about our, our normal approach here. We try at Friendship Bible Church to just teach through the Bible. We try to just pick a particular book or section or sometimes topic and just work our way through that. Our goal is to make sure that we don't leave anything out, that we don't skip things, that we just teach the Bible as God gave us the Bible. And so right now we're in a study in First Corinthians, and uh, we've already covered the first four chapters. Um, we'll talk, start today in chapter five. And if anybody thought the first four chapters were slow going, a hard slog, where do we get to hear the chapter five? So let's read chapter five, verse one. "It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage of scripture. And though, Lord, it's a difficult passage, an unpleasant passage, yet, Lord, it is the word of God. And so we thank you for it. And we pray today, I pray today, Lord, for the filling of the spirit that you'd help me to not be... Uh, heavy or laborious with this. I pray, Father, that you'd speak to our hearts and teach us what you want us to know from it. And I pray, Father, we'd be clear and understanding. And most of all, Lord, we'd apply it to our lives. May we, as believers, recognize the importance of purity in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine, if you would, that you are sitting on your front porch on a nice, warm summer day, and you notice the FedEx man drive up in your driveway. Can you imagine that? Now, if you're like me, you like the FedEx man coming in your driveway. It's like Christmas. He comes in and you're thinking, wow, I'm going to get some kind of a package. And just, so you sit there and you watch to see what he's going to bring. So imagine you're sitting there on the porch and the FedEx man pulls up and he walks around, he smiles at you as he gets out of the truck. He walks around to the back and he opens up the back of the truck and he pulls out this great big package. And you're thinking, man, that looks great. But instead of bringing the package to you, He pulls a box cutter out of his pocket, and he opens the package right there in the back of the truck. And while you're watching, he looks down in the package, and he takes something out of the package. And he looks at this, and you can just hear him from across the yard, you can hear him saying something like, nah, they wouldn't want that. And so he pitches it back in the truck. And you're thinking, what is going on here? And he looks in the package again, and he reaches down in there, he pulls something out, and he says, oh no, I can't give that to them, that... That might offend them. And so he pitches it back in the truck. And he continues doing this, just reaching into the package and pulling things out and looking at them and coming up with various reasons or they wouldn't like that or that might bother their neighbors or that would be, that's something that, you know, that's old fashioned, we wouldn't want that. And all these different things he throws into the, into the back of the truck and finally he looks down in there, he seems satisfied, he pulls out a roll of tape, he tapes the box up and he walks over to you and he hands you your package. How would you respond? to this FedEx man, would you be happy that he had now given you one-fourth of the package that had originally been delivered to you? Or would you think about calling the sheriff? Most of us would probably think about calling the sheriff, wouldn't we? You know, there are some things in the Bible that we do not necessarily want to talk about. Some things in the Bible that are difficult for us to talk about or that might, might seem even painful to talk about. But I have to stand before you today and tell you that as your pastor, it is not my job to take things out of the package. It is my job to deliver to you the package as God delivered it to all of us. And so Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And so this is an interesting passage today. But we're going to look at all of it. We're not going to leave any of it out, Lord willing. I've struggled this week as I read this passage. I've struggled with how we might, uh, pre- how we might present this. I've come up with a couple of different outlines that we might uh, attempt to follow as we went down through here. But then I just decided, you know what? I think the safest place to go is to just let the text speak for itself. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it in exactly the order, exactly the way that God has laid it out for us this morning. There are four paragraphs in this chapter and we're going to look at We're going to look at it in that order and in that form of division. Verses 1 through 5 forms the first paragraph, and I want you to notice there that Paul is talking about a very serious problem and its solution. In verses 6 through 8, you'll see the second paragraph, and in in most Bibles, you'll see this divided up like this in paragraphs. In verses 6 through 8, you'll see the second paragraph, and in that paragraph, Paul is giving them both a reminder and a warning. And then finally, verses 9 through 13 contain the last two paragraphs. We'll look at them together. And there he issues a clarification and a summary of his argument. So that's how I want to look at it today. First of all, verses 1 through 5, a serious problem and its solution. A serious problem and its solution. You know, in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been concentrating on one topic. Anybody want to tell me what that topic has been? Oh, come on. Nobody knows what that topic has been. We've hammered it and hammered it and hammered it. He's been talking about division, division in the local church. I I thought that you would be very, very happy that we're off that topic now. But since you didn't remember it, maybe we should talk about it a little bit more. But nonetheless, that's what he's been talking about. And now we come to chapter 5 and we find this abrupt change in topic. Chapter 5, verse number 1, it's it's just kind of like glaring first. Verse number one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now, the first four chapters where he did talk about division had sprung out of a report that came to him. If you remember all the way back in chapter one, verse number 11, it said that he had heard of this from Chloe's family. Now, I'm not sure who Chloe was. Chloe was apparently a member of the church. And this family had brought word back to Paul about this problem that was going on in the church with division. It's possible, I suppose, that that is also where this report came from. But if you look at verse number one and the way he worded that, that's, that doesn't sound right. It seems there in, in this verse that Paul is saying this is something he was hearing everywhere, that it was commonly reported. And as a matter of fact, some versions, I think the King James Version even says it is commonly reported among you. That there's fornication or sexual immorality. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I'm hearing this everywhere I go. This is in the wild. This is on YouTube. This is going viral. Every place I hear, every place I go, is this report that this sexual immorality is taking place in the Corinthian church. Now, the exact charge was pretty amazing. The exact charge was that someone, a member of the church at Corinth, was engaged in a, quote, incestuous affair with his stepmother, unquote. Most people don't believe it was his mother. It could have been his mother, but most people don't believe it was his mother because Paul would have specifically stated that. The very fact that he worded it the way he did makes us believe it was his stepmother. Now, after all we know about Corinth, and the promiscuous ways that, uh, I mean, uh, to be a Corinthian was basically uh, a definition of this kind of thing. And so after all we know about that kind of stuff, it might not seem like much of a, of a deal. We might wonder why he would be so upset about that. But the fact is, that behavior was not only a violation of the law of God. It was not only a violation of the law of Moses, as defined in the Old Testament. It was even a violation of Roman law at the time. Debauched Rome. It was even a violation of their law. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 18, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Deuteronomy 22 says if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So from any way you wanted to look at it, this was a serious, serious charge. Now, a couple of details jumped out at me as I thought about this difficult passage. For example, the very fact that the sin was well known to the outside world is interesting. It was commonly reported. And I think the problem there in Paul's mind no doubt had to be that this was causing uh, such a blotch on the testimony of that church. It was commonly known. It was out there. Everybody knew that this church had this problem going on. Another thing that jumps out at me is that the sin was apparently ongoing. This is not something that had happened in the past and was... It was just something that was being dredged up now as some past sin. You know what the wonderful thing about the gospel is? Past sin doesn't mean a thing. All my sins in the past, well, all my sins actually, all my sins. But I don't have to worry about my past sin because it's under the blood. And you ought not to be bringing up my past sin. And I'm not going to bring up your past sin. It's under the blood. He's not talking about some past sin here. He's talking about something that is ongoing. Notice the word has in verse number one. He has. was happening still right now. And a third thing I notice about this is that I think the, the husband was apparently still around. The husband was around. Now, if you, if you study this out and you pick up some commentaries, you're going to find that a lot of commentators say that's not true. They say the husband was apparently dead. I can't figure out where they're getting that. I, I can't find a single verse where it says that, but for some reason they say the husband was apparently dead. But I can find a verse that I think supports the exact opposite conclusion, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians As Brother Phil mentioned this morning in his Sunday school class, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, later on now, is reaching back and touching the same issue again. It has already taken place, and now he's talking about it in the past tense. And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 12. He says, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now, I think the person who had done the wrong is obvious from what we're seeing here. But who is the person who had suffered the wrong? I tend to think he's talking there about the husband, the wronged party. And so I think that's evidence that the husband was apparently still around. Can't can't be dogmatic about that, but I think it's true. And so to sum it up, in the church at Corinth, there was a man who was having an affair with his father's wife. The father was still apparently alive. This affair was something that was ongoing, well-known, even openly known in Gentile or pagan society. And so before the world... This sin was being tolerated in this church. That's what's taking place here in chapter 5. And frankly, this flabbergasted Paul. He said in verse number 1 that such sexual immorality was not even named among the Gentiles. He was saying their behavior was something that you wouldn't even see among the unsaved. One guy put it like this. He said it was shameful that the church's standards had not only come down to the low standards of the world around them, but even lower. Sad. Sad, but even sadder. As flabbergasted as Paul was by the behavior itself, I think he might have been even more flabbergasted by the response of the church to that particular behavior. Look at verse number two. He said, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Look down at verse number 6. He says, your glorying is not good. They were puffed up. That means they were proud. What? They were proud. They were glorying. That means they were bragging. I I can't get my brain around that. Can you imagine that? How's how's that church you're going to down there? Friendship Bible Church. Oh, it's a great place. You know, we've got somebody in our church who's engaged in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Isn't that great? Can you imagine? That is apparently what was going on. Maybe an exaggeration. They were proud. And they were bragging about this thing. I've thought about that. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the things I've struggled the most to get my brain around as I've I've worked through this in my studies this week. What in the world would they be proud about? What in the world would they be bragging about? But you know, as I studied it and thought and prayed about it, I, I believe I can see some reasons. I believe I can see some reasons that would even apply to churches today. For example, you know what I think might be one possibility? I think one possibility would be that they were proud of their tolerance of other people. We ever hear that today? Hmm. Amen. We surely do. It would be very similar to many churches in our society today, which proudly proclaim that they're tolerant of all lifestyles and behaviors. Whether the Bible proclaims that as a sinful behavior or not, they're proud of it. They're tolerant of it. But we're never to tolerate sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. We're to love sinners, but we're to hate sin. We're to do everything we can to evangelize and win sinners. And God helping us, we're to do everything we can as believers to live holy and pure lives as much as is, as is possible within us. But sin is not to be tolerated. It's not to be tolerated. The Bible tells me we're to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Jesus said, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. I'm not supposed to tolerate sin. But that may be one possibility. That may be what they were thinking. Another possibility may be. Maybe it's a little bit redundant with the first one, I don't know, but it's possible that these Corinthians were proud of their liberty in Christ. In other words, maybe they thought this was one of those we're not under the law but under grace situations. Is that possible? Maybe they were an example of that kind of thinking run amok. Verse number six, that phrase, your boasting is not good. One guy commented on that and he said, this comment helps interpret the attitude of the Corinthian church. They were claiming a freedom and license based on the gospel. They wanted to flaunt their new freedom instead of providing a gospel witness to their community. That's not what it means when we know that the Bible says we're not under the law but under grace. That's not what that means. Paul dealt with this kind of. Nonsense. In Romans chapter six, he said in Romans chapter six, verse number one, what shall we say? Then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You know, I know about enough Greek to put in a thimble. You know, the New Testament's written in Greek. I know about enough Greek to put in a thimble. I know enough Greek to be extremely dangerous. But I know this. I know that in Greek there are different forms of the negative. We have the same thing in English. We might say, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul might have said, no. That's a a negative, right? He might have said, never. That's a negative. He might also have said, absolutely not! That will be a negative. Well, each one getting a little bit stronger, right? (laughs) This particular negative that he uses here, translated in the New King James as certainly not, is the strongest possible Greek negative. We might translate that in English, we might paraphrase it in English is never 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 under any circumstances absolutely not never that's basically what he's saying and so they were mistaken if that was their if that was their reason the fact that we're under grace and not under law it doesn't in any way give us license to violate the moral law of god christians are under obligation to live just as much as is possible according to the 10 commandments that's not how we're saved but that's the standard to which we are to try to live and so if that was their reasoning, they were wrong. There's a third possibility, too, of why they would have been proud. And, and this one seems favored by most that I studied. Most people seem to think that Paul was saying, you know, you guys are proud of your gifted teachers. And you're divided over things like which teacher is best. And all this kind of garbage is occurring in your midst. In other words, the pride is not talking about this sin. The pride is referring back to what we've already discussed in chapters 1 through 4. You guys are proud. We've spent all this time talking about how you're so proud of your great spirituality. You're proud and this is going on in your church. It's possible. One person said puffed up. That phrase means with your own wisdom and knowledge and the eloquence of your favorite teachers at a time when you ought to be mourning at the scandal caused to religion by the incest. And others said you're glorying in your own attainments and those of your favorite teachers while all the while you connive at such a scandal is quite Unseemly. So there's three possible reasons why they would be proud over this terrible situation. And maybe you can think of some more. I don't know. But regardless of why it was so, their response to this sin had been they were puffed up. And Paul was amazed by it. They were bragging about it. They were proud. They were glorying. Amazing. Paul said here they should have mourned. They should have mourned. I thought about preaching an entire sermon on that little phrase. I encourage you to meditate on it a little bit. You have not rather mourned. You have not rather mourned. It tells us very plainly what their response should have been. We'll get to chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians eventually, and we'll see Paul say, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In Galatians chapter 6, he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken... In any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So their correct response should have been mourning and sorrow, that such a thing would occur in the midst of their church, that a brother in Christ was that enslaved to sin. Paul doesn't stop there. It gets worse. He keeps on going. He says their response should not have stopped with mourning. Their response should have extended to removing this man from the midst of their church. Look at verse number 2. He says, he who has done this deed might be taken from among you. That was the ultimate response he wanted to see take place. Referred to what we often refer to as church discipline. Probably referred to excluding this person from the Lord's table as we just observed. And may also have gone further than that. Perhaps from all fellowship with the church that's what they should have done, you should have mourned you should have put him out of the church Paul goes even further he's brutal in this passage, he goes even further he says it's not enough that I'm telling you this is what you should have done Now, as an apostle, I am commanding you that this is what you will do. And that's what he does in verses 3 through 5. He invokes his authority as an apostle. He tells them to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, remove him from the protection of the church and put him into the world under the influence of Satan. Do you remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? How many remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? You read about it in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. The children of Israel under Joshua had had a wonderful victory at Jericho. We all remember that story. The walls had come a-tumbling down, and they had gone marching in there, and they had wiped out Jericho. It was a great, great victory as they were entering into the Promised Land. And then very shortly thereafter, they went up against a little town called Ai. When I say little, you need to think Randolph. And they got them, their lunch handed to them. The mighty warriors of Israel who had just wiped out Jericho ran like girls before the men of Ai. And they were wiped out. And Joshua fell on his face before, the, before God and said, what in the world is going on? And listen to what God said to Joshua in uh, Joshua chapter 7 verses 10 through 13. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. You see, one man, Achan, had disobeyed God. God had said when they went into Jericho, he said, don't you touch a thing. Wipe it all out. Kill man, woman, and child. It is all to be wiped out. Take no spoil. All of it. Wiped out. Achan saw some. Silver, I think. He saw some garment that he liked. And he took it. He took it. And that one disobedience, that one little sin, affected not only Achan, but everybody. It resulted in God allowing their defeated Ai. You can read the whole story in Joshua 6 and 7, and you'll see it. You know what Paul was saying here? He's saying there is sin in the camp, and it needs to be removed, just as it did in the matter of being puffed up and proud of your tolerance or your liberty in Christ or any of those things or even of your tremendous knowledge and your great teachers. It's ridiculous. You need to get the sin out of the camp is what he was saying. You need to exercise discipline in this matter. I think Paul is teaching here in chapter 5 perhaps as clearly as any place else we'll find in the New Testament the importance of practicing church discipline. Jesus himself had laid out the Method for this in Matthew chapter 18. He gave us the formula and I'm not going to talk about that this morning. You can look at that on your own. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 and following. It's pretty it's pretty clear. But I do want to I do want to make one thing clear this morning before we get off this topic. And that is this. We need to understand the purpose of it. The purpose of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is never to hurt people. It's never meant to punish people. It is meant only to help people. And restore people. You need to remember. I need to remember. I have to remind myself of this. We all have to remind ourselves of this. We ought to write it on our soul in letters of fire. God loves you. God loves you. God is love. God is light, the Bible says. In him is no darkness at all. God is perfectly just. Perfectly. We need to meditate on that word for a while. Perfectly just. He never does anything to hurt or hinder or harm you in any way. One of my wife's favorite verses, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so the purpose of church discipline is always the restoration of the sinner. The problem with tolerating the sin is it confirms the sinner in his position and leaves him there does nothing to help him out of it. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He puts it like this, the unrepentant person may suffer greatly under God's judgment, but will not be an evil influence in the church, and he will more likely be saved under that judgment than if tolerated and accepted in the church. And that's the goal. His restoration, his repentance, his walk with God. Get to Second Corinthians and you're going to find that Paul returns to this topic and, and even discusses this very incident again and in that letter he's going to stress that with the repentance of the sinner the purpose has been fulfilled and it has accomplished its task and the person should be welcomed back into fellowship completely notice what he says second corinthians chapter 2 verse 5 if anyone has caused grief he has not grieved me but all of you to some extent not to be too severe this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So there was a serious problem and the solution. Quickly, that was 90% of the message. Quickly, let's look at the last two items, the last couple of paragraphs, verses 6 through 8. He also gives a reminder and a warning. A reminder and a warning, verses 6 through 8. I remember listening to a sermon one time at Arlington Memorial Baptist Church. Reverend Don Davies was preaching. I don't know if he was preaching on this text or not. He might have been. He was certainly preaching on this topic. But the thing I remember is not so much his sermon. I remember that when we when he walked up to the platform, we noticed that stand, sitting right beside the platform, there was a little table right here. And on this little table, there was this big pile of white goo. Didn't know what it was. Just this pile of white goo. He opened his Bible and he began to preach. He never mentioned the white goo. He started to preach on the effect of sin in the individual believer and the effect of sin in, in, the, in the church. And we're listening and everything's fine, but pretty soon you start hearing just a little bit of murmuring in the crowd because all of us noticed that this little pile of white goo was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Never said a word about it, he just kept right on preaching. Pretty soon this pile of white goo had reached the edges of the table and was falling over the edges of the table and plopping onto the floor. And of course, you know what it was, it was bread dough. With yeast in it. And as he was preaching about this very topic. This dough was just rising and rising and rising and falling. I'm sure the janitor was very thrilled. To have to go up and clean that all up. But I'm sure also none of us will ever forget the picture. Who were there that day. Because isn't that what Paul is saying here? In these verses he's saying sin is like yeast. A little bit of it permeates everything. It grows. It influences everything. Matter of fact just about every place you look in the Bible. Leaven which is the Bible word for yeast, leaven is used to, to refer to sin. We can't say every place because Jesus used it a couple places to refer to the kingdom of God. But it normally does reference sin. And so what Paul is saying here is sin in your midst, church, it's like it's like yeast. It's like leaven. It's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow. One man said, a little yeast soon permeates the whole batch of dough. A small sickness can eventually kill a body. And the need for church discipline, which is what he's talking about in this passage, is based on the same principle. And so Paul's telling them here, he's warning them here, if left alone, a single tolerated sin can and will permeate and poison the entire church. One last thing, look at verses 9 through 13. He gives here a clarification and a summary. A clarification and a summary. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I wrote to you in my epistle. Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthian church. You'll notice we're looking at 1 Corinthians in our Bible. That would seem to imply it was the first letter he had written to the Corinthians. But we know that is not true. We know that is not true because of this verse. He said he had written them a previous letter. We don't have access to that. We don't know what is in it. But apparently in there, he had addressed some of these topics. And apparently in there, he had addressed this matter of separation from unconfessed sins. And the Corinthians had apparently misunderstood him. And they had apparently thought he was talking about separating from lost people, separating from the world. And he says, wait a minute now. Let me clear that up. He says, that's not what I meant at all. Let me see if I can paraphrase his thoughts just a little bit from this passage. I think what he's saying in these last few verses is we're supposed to go into the lost world and preach the gospel and win them to Jesus. And we can't do that if we don't go to them. He wasn't saying ever that we're supposed to separate ourselves from the lost world. His his teaching here on separation from sin has to do with the church here, us, the believers. He says in verse number 12 that the lost are outside, the saved are inside. That's the way he's referring to them. And Paul's consideration of church discipline here is something that refers only to those who are inside. Those who are part of the church. Those who are outside are under the judgment of God. And he's perfectly content to leave them to that. And by the way, that might explain why the woman is never mentioned. Anybody ever notice that? How come the woman wasn't disciplined here? How come only the man was disciplined? And I think Paul explains it right here. I think the evidence is she was not a believer. She was lost. And therefore, she was not a matter. For church discipline. MacArthur said those on the outside are for God to judge and believers to evangelize. One last comment about this, and then I'm going to wrap it up. I want you to notice one last thing. He is dealing in this passage with a very specific sin. We've been talking about it throughout the whole thing. It's referred to as sexual immorality here. If you're holding the King James Bible, it says fornication. Uh if you uh if we, we read what it is and we define it, we know that it was incest. We we've already we've already defined all that. But you notice that in this last section he adds some other sins. Did you see that? Verse number 10, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Verse number 11, he says, Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner. And the point is he just keeps building the list. It's not just sexual sin we're talking about here. It's not just fornication. It's just sin. It's just sin. We need to recognize here that the whole issue is sin in general. Period. Well, this has not been an easy passage, has it? How many of you are not coming back next week? (laughs) If you're visiting with us today, we don't always talk about this kind of stuff. But it is, however, why we try to go verse by verse. Section by section through scripture. I'll be honest with you, in, in, my, in my weakness and in my flesh, if I had had any way to avoid this, I would not have talked about this today. But it was chapter 5, and it was time. It was that right after chapter 4. I had no choice. So I thank you this morning that you've paid attention as we labored through all this stuff. It is important that we look at it. And we've tried to be faithful to the word today. But I guess we just need to ask ourselves a question in closing, and that is, that is this. What does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? And how, how do we apply these hard truths both to our, our church and to ourselves as individuals? And let me just mention a couple of statements and done. I would suggest that as a church we need to work at keeping ourselves pure. We need to faithfully practice church discipline if needed. In five years here we have not had to do that. I don't know if it was ever done here before I came here or not. We do not. Have, I hope we never did. But the leadership must be willing to do it. And the church must be willing to support the leadership if it ever comes up. We need to keep ourselves pure. As individual believers, we need to work at keeping ourselves pure. Let's not put our brothers and sisters through this. Let's not do that. Let's work every day of our lives to be clean and pure before God, to live according to his standard. And when we sin and we will, let us keep short accounts with God. My Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. My Bible says we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. Let's make sure we're keeping on top of that, and keep short accounts with God. And finally, we need to remember this. And if you haven't, if if you if you zoned me out a long time ago, will you listen to this part? Just this last part. We need to remember that everything God does is meant to draw us closer to Him. Everything. Everything. When He demands a sinning member be removed from fellowship and thrown out into the world, it is so, like the prodigal son. He will come to his senses and come back to God. It is for his good. It is for our good. God does all these things for our good. He sent his only son to die in your place on the cross. In doing so, he demonstrated just how serious he is about drawing you to him. How could he, how, what more could he do to demonstrate how much he wants you to be with him? He will stop at nothing to win your heart. He will woo you until the day you die. He loves you. If that means disciplining you a bit to get you to turn back to Him, He'll do that too.